Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Growing with My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined, as always, by an amazing panel. I'm going to pass it over first to Spartan Grown. Thanks, Jack. Uh, what's up, everybody? I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word. Um, that's the only social media that, I, that I'm on. Anything else is probably a copycat. Um, if you don't do Instagram, you can get a hold of me on uh, just through an email, spartangrown at gmail.com, and I can help you with both your organic or your synthetic growing um, questions. I had a brain fart there. Always happy to have you back. I like the uh, amended introduction there, you know, to be most accurate. But uh, next up, we got Brandon Rust. You're moving, Brandon. Brand. Right. What's going on, everybody? Brandon Rust here. Uh, it's been a minute. Been staying pretty busy, working on a lot of cool stuff. Uh, but it's always glad to be back. Chop, chop it up, talk shop. Uh, you can find me at Instagram at rust.brandon. And you can find my company, Bokashi Earthworks, www.bokashieearthworks.com. Good to have you back as always. Next up, Matthew Gates. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Gates. I'm an integrated pest management specialist, and you can check out some cool free educational information on my YouTube channel, Zenthanol, which is also the channel I'm commenting in the chat with. You can also find me for professional inquiries at zenthanol.com. I handle training for pest recognition and pest treatment, as well as other information regarding pests and how to deal with them. Happy to have you back. And next up, Kyle Breeder. Hey everybody, uh, Kyle Breeder here. I uh, just want to say thanks for, uh, I feel like it's been quite a while since I've been here, but uh, maybe maybe it hasn't. But um, yeah, if anyone's looking for uh, some feminized seeds, which is what I specialize in, I have a website, it's purebreeding.com. I actually just launched a brand new seed line on uh, Saturday. So if anybody's interested in that, I still have some tax left if, if you are interested. And uh, yeah, Instagram's pure underscore breeding. Facebook and Twitter is pure breeding. And uh, yeah, it's happy to be here. Happy to have you back. Next up, last and certainly not least, who's with us right now, the American one. Hello, Jack. Spartan, Rust. I mean, yeah, Russ Brandon. Brandon Russ. Brandon. I always get you mixed up because your first IG was russ brandon i thought your name was rust for a while but i digress matthew gates kyle it's all good always good to see you boys and everyone in chat i'm the american one and uh yeah it's always good to talk cannabis and uh yeah great to be here so a little bit before the show i just kind of uh came up with an idea of a topic for the tonight's session that we could maybe start off with. Uh, it's actually two separate topics. And the first one I labeled in the title for anybody who already checked that out uh, and is astute like that will know that it is pot size. And the other topic will be uh, plant training. And then we'll probably spitball into, uh, I think Matthew has another topic and then we can maybe even take some chat Q&A depending on how long those go for. But I wanted to start off, we talked a little bit about grow mediums and different ways to grow the plant. But one of the things that we didn't really specify much was the pot size. And that's something that actually does matter quite a bit. And I know a lot of people have a lot of different techniques. So I figured I'd go around the panel and give everybody kind of a chance to describe their strategy with different pot sizes, what they start off in, how often do they transplant, and what size pot do they finish in. So I'll pass it first, just like I did in introductions, back to Spartan Grown. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I actually have transitioned to not using 
a lot of pot changes, a lot of, uh, I don't do a lot of transplanting. What I do in my, my personal grow is, is I, I end up in a SIP container and a SIP container is it'll hold 1.5 cubic feet of soil, which puts it somewhere in between, I think a 10 and a, whatever the next size up 15, somewhere in between that gallon pot. So I usually, well, actually I, I do. So I go from a cutting or a clone size and I'll go into a one gallon, usually a one gallon from that. And then from the one gallon, once it gets rooted out in a one gallon, I go right into my final pot and I don't really deviate from that. And, and both pots are plastic. I do have some um, fabric pots that I've played with and grown in before, but those are mostly used outside for, uh, for vegetables and things like that. I don't, I don't care for the fabric pots so much. So your smallest size pot you would go into uh, would be a one gallon. It sounds like if you're starting from a clone. Yeah. Well, I, I would consider, I mean, I have gone from like, sometimes I've gotten cups, you know, like a clone in a cup. So whatever cup size is, and then from that to a one, but um, yeah, I, I would consider going smaller. I could, I would go into a, you know, a half gallon and then to the one, but, but uh, if you were starting like, a seed, would you go in like, seed, I'd go into the, I would probably go from, so I start seeds in a root rat cube. So I would wait until I see a root come out of that cube and then I plant it. And I usually would plant it into a one gallon pot from that. And I'm guessing like a true one gallon, like a one gallon plastic pot, which is yeah. not actually a gallon, but it's like a shovel full of soil typically. Um, funny enough, I use a one gallon pot that's made by easy swap pots and it's not one gallon of yeah. soil. It's actually like one gallon, one gallon. And compared to other one gallon pots, it's probably double the size. It's, it's closer to two full gallons. And uh, so that does make a difference. I start off in the solo cups personally, and then I transplant and do a one gallon easy swap pot before similar to Spartan, I go into uh, not a city picker, but a um, earth box, which is about 1.5 to two cubic feet of soil, like between 10 and 15 gallons, depending on how high you fill it up. And uh, how much of the reservoir is filled up and things like that. But uh, it's very solid strategy, I think, for soil. But I'm curious, uh, Kyle, breeder, what size pots do you like to get started in and how often do you transplant into what sizes? Uh, yeah, so mainly I'm, I'm pure indoors, so I have uh, ceiling height restrictions. So I'm kind of forced to, uh, and I'm more about numbers because I'm typically breeding or, you know, so I'm looking for uh, more pollen donors or pollen receivers so um there's a lot of in and outs a lot of times so i'm forced to kind of uh use smaller pots purposely and um you know so i start off in solo cups and then once they get pretty well rooted in there you know where i'm on like a almost an everyday feed that's when i know that they're they're getting pretty uh pretty beefed up inside of those solos uh i'll either go to a uh, I'll go to a one gallon if, if I if I'm trying to like burn some time up so that way they can kind of chill in there for a little bit. But uh, so I'll either go from a solo to a two gallon if I'm going to flower in that. You know, I maybe I'll let them acclimate for a week or two in the two gallon and then flip them. Um, but if I'm trying to get some height on them and maybe max out my tents, I'll I'll let them get kind of full in the one gallons and then jump to a three and then flower them out. And uh, seems to work out pr pretty pretty well for the most part. And I guess I'll follow that up with um, a question like how tall slash wide are your plants by the finish typically? And you could give a range. Yeah, like so, yeah. 
Yeah, so all my all my breeding tents are like six foot uh, six foot six, I want to say. And I mean, I try not to let them go. <laughs> I don't know, maybe like from where the soil from where the soil is, maybe like uh, maybe two and a half feet, three feet, like. That. And then, like I was telling you guys last time, I've been like, you know. Dr. MJ says I'm stunting them or however you, however you want to kind of paint the picture. I mean, it, it kind of just works as a tool in, in my mind, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll basically do like polar opposites. I'll do six hours of light, 18 hours of darkness. Just so I've just found that with some of the varieties that I'm working with that they're not stretching as hardcore as I were, if I, if I were to just go to 12 and 12 and that allows me to get some extra, it just it, it, it simplifies any complications and smashing into the into the lights and now i have like you know all kinds of issues and stuff like that so yeah i think that his philosophy is just that he would rather veg for a shorter time flip and then take advantage of the stretch versus vegging for a longer time flipping and then having less stretch and flower but it's all just management practices and i was just curious because uh pot size i do think ultimately impacts the plant size so like if to oregon or northern california these thousand gallon pots they're growing 10 plus pound plants it makes sense because they have enough to feed that plant and it's got a long enough veg time and a long enough flower season to produce that amount but plus indoors are going for pretty much as fast of a veg as possible and then flowering and whatever its flower time is so spartan um with your pots how big would you like plants to get you can like a range from shortest to the tallest and then how wide do you typically grow them because i know i think you use the city picker yeah, I try to, my canopy is usually, my canopy is always trying to fill a two by two space because I have four plants in a four by four. So if I can cover a two by two space, so that's usually the width. And But the, as far as height goes, it's always between three to four feet tall. Um, unless I, I, you know, unless there's a sativa in there that surprises me or something that's super stretchy that I wasn't aware of. And, um, you know, and I didn't plan for that. Then they can get up to five feet tall, maybe, but it's generally three to four feet tall. And five feet tall is stupid, ridiculous, getting burned up by the lights height. It's not production. That's <laughs> not a good height. What's your roof or uh, ceiling height like? And, and uh, like how high can you raise it up? I can. Uh, so with the GML, I, I'm pretty lucky in that uh, those bar lights spread it. So they're so spread out that I can get within. So I've had plants within 12 inches and they were fine of the bar light. And um, let me see, it's probably six, five at the shortest part, the shortest height in, in that space, probably six, five ish. And so when you add the light and then the, those city pickers are, are a lot like your, your earth boxes that they sit on wheels too. So I probably lose at least I would say at least a foot between the pot and the, the, the light hanging distance. So I could probably go five, five to really <laughs> be at the light, but no, I mean, I don't, I don't ever want to get to that point. Makes management a lot more difficult for sure. Uh, the American one, I know that you are uh, someone growing in pots right now and I'm curious what size you start off in and how and transplant and the uh, same question those guys answered. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because I was thinking like Kyle straight away about um, I, I uh, well, it's I start my clones all differently all the time. So if they're in a solo cup, I go to one gallon. I'm go sure. I go to one gallon and I go to either a five gallon or a seven gallon container right now. But I am uh, aspiring to get 10 gallons all the way around. 
and I'll just go right from the one gallon probably into the 10 gallon because I don't I don't like uh, I don't know I don't want to have tons of different kinds of sizes so I don't I heat three gallon pots for some reason I don't know I got a thing but I love the number three but anyway um, it all depends on like like when you were saying I had like for a while over the winter it was really cool because I had my plants in uh, one gallon containers and the temperature and the low lighting kept them at kept them happy without um you know having them grow out of their space for a longer time which i like because i have a lot of things i want to keep so when when they get too big you have to it, especially the way i do it organics unless i uh start i want to start figuring out better cheese but in general when they outgrow the container you got to upland or else they won't be happy really so it's good if you have a uh a spot where they can kind of chill and not grow so quickly and stay happy and alive uh, that's one of the things, and um, I'm really interested in the city picker slash earth box uh, sip technology. I think I'm going to have to give that a try. And I just happened across an IG post where, like, to have an insert that you could put into any container and turn it into a a sip uh, a sip bucket, but it has to be a certain size. They have ones for five gallon, but the one I saw was for uh, eight eight gallon or more. So I think I'm, I'm thinking about trying that, but, um, and I'm also considering, I think I'm going to make, um, like a no-till bag. I'm going to take one of my four by fours and get a four by four, two foot high container, fill the whole thing. You know what I'm saying? Because like a bed, because yeah, I'm starting to believe in that magic a little more and more as I, uh, see things and learn things. And, and when the, the roots can share each other and, uh, all that kind of stuff, I really going to do that. I think soon. But I, I initially didn't want to because, um, you know, to move it or, God forbid, a, a pop-up inspection has to happen or anything like that. That's when it might become an issue then. I'm with you, but, man. Um, and yeah. I don't like transplanting into flower. I hate fucking that. Yeah, if they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's kind of what you have to do unless you're going to dedicate the whole tent to a, a slight right. bed. That's what I just did recently, too. I'm kind of loving that. Because, yeah, that makes a world of difference. Because I've only done it a few times where I use my, uh, like, quote, flowering tent. But I move the plants in there and keep them under 18.6 because they get in different lighting in my particular instance. And once they, you can see them get comfortable in their new home and then flip them to flower, they're a lot better and happier. Yeah. Um, oh, shit. I just, there was something else that just popped in my head that popped back out. <laughs> All right. Well, if I happen to think of it, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll barge in and interrupt somebody. But. I do the um, same uh, with the because like my earth box stays in my flower tent instead of having it always in flower. Like I'll have my harvest and then my next crop end up in veg. So as soon as I chop, I can transplant in. And then instead of going straight to flower, I'll give them usually full week. Sometimes a little I'm noticing they're like they just took off like one or two days in clearly tapped down to the bottom of the water and are just thriving and growing like right away. But usually just a full week to be safe. Yeah. But, oh, now I remember. I remember because of the, the time where I was saying, like, I took it right from the solo cup and put it into the five gallon, and that did not work. We were talking about how it helps when they give them a smaller space, let the roots fill in that space, yeah. and then upplant them. The plant grows so much quicker. It's unbelievable. I don't know, like, why, but it definitely makes a difference. So It's that stepping up. I think the root <laughs> mass, uh, it fills up most of the pot that it's in. Instead of going from like a solo cup to a five gallon, which is huge, that solo cup's only going to fill up like 5% of a five gallon. But if you go into a one gallon, fill a full one gallon or two gallon, and right. those roots get transplanted into a five gallon, then they have more 
access and more areas they're starting from to fill that five gallon or whatever. So yeah, stage yeah. transplanting should and, and can work if it's done well. If you have a bunch of transplant shock, it will put on your plants. Like if you just completely mangle them, but right. with a proper technique, it's possible. And the one thing before I pass it to Brandon, I'll say uh, a benefit of 10 gallon versus three gallons, more room for crystals. <laughs> so there you go. Always, uh, <laughs> always good. But uh, Brandon, as far as uh, this goes, pot sizing, I know that you in beds and your commercial setups, but I'm curious, uh, home growing or generally, uh, even for commercial cultivation space, what's your preference for uh, pot size starting? And then how often do you transplant and what do you finish in? And then like uh, last question would be, how, how large do you expect the plants to be at finish height and width? So pot size doesn't matter so much as nutritional sufficiency in the media that you're using. And, and a good example of this is you can, you've seen guys grow in Dixie cups with hydronutrients and pull out, you know, four foot plant, right? So there's no clear one concise answer about plant size and pot size. It's all about the nutritional sufficiency of the media that they're growing in, whether the, that is balanced and how much of it is there, as well as your environment, your lighting, all the other parameters. When it comes to well, pots, I agree with it. I do. I do think that like a, a thousand gallon uh, pot is going to have to grow more than a ten gallon pot. Obviously, it takes up more space. You're going to have to have more veg time and all that good stuff. But um, like a, a hydro, you can push it to a point. Like I've grown in cocoa as small as like one gallon pots, and I know people do the solo cup challenge and get two, three foot tall plants. Like I've been able to pull twelve ounces out of a one gallon pot in cocoa, but I could never do that in soil. So I do think the media or medium uh, matters. I guess if I was hitting it with like some of yeah, the humate, like humate, more humate, the nutrients, like more the nutrients, then it doesn't matter so much what the media is, right? Not as much, but I think that it still matters to an it extent. It makes a difference. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you could also have a thousand gallon pot with soil that's insufficient and not have the growth that you expected. So again, there's, it's really about the nutritional sufficiency with, with whatever cultivation style you're using. Me personally, for commercial application, I like beds. And the reason why I do beds is because they hold nutritional sufficiency and balance longer. So that way it can do less frequent testing. And the idea is to, to create the most cost-effective models for operations. And so... I've also decreased my bed size to 12 inches because through all my experience, I never really saw the roots of cannabis really go past that point. So you have all this media underneath and it's unnecessary. So it's less, you know, less soil volume, less amendments that have to go into a, a space, but it's a sufficient amount to keep things balanced almost through an entire run. If you hit right in the beginning of flower, and you get everything to nutritional sufficiency, you could do a whole run, you know, and you, and that's, you know, even in a seven or 10 or 15 gallon pot, you could do the same thing. However, that soil might require a little more maintenance because if you do have a bigger plant, it will pleat nutrition faster and it'll, things will go out of balance faster, especially if they're highly biologically active. You have to remember that biological systems release organic acids and enzymes that drop the soil pH. You know, Brandon, so, did yeah. you notice when you made that change to the 12 inches, the, um, a watering difference too? Like did, did they yeah. consume? 
So when you're when you decrease the soil volume, you decrease the input because if we're looking at something like, hey, you need X amount of nutrient per yard of soil. And if right. you have a bed that's 22 yards versus something like 15, 15. it makes yeah. a huge difference in the amount that you'll have to put into that soil to keep it sufficient. Um, the volume and then also the amount of water you're going to be using. So it cuts costs from not just one perspective, but from many, many different perspectives, you know. Wouldn't dry back rate in a smaller volume of soil be a little bit quicker? And in my perspective, have benefit because then you're able to water a little bit more frequently. They take water up, some evaporates, but some of it's taken up by the plant. And then you can water again earlier without having as much of a risk of overwatering. Especially if you have an automated watering or fertigation system, in which you could, you know, set those parameters, then absolutely. I will say um, 2020 Mendocino, they do a mixed flight greenhouse in Northern California, Mendocino. And they did an experiment where they have these uh, mats underneath their beds versus like top watering. And I think they said they increased by 20 to 25% yields and like their cannabinoids and everything went up with the bottom watering where they just basically like flooded it from beneath and it absorbed the water up. So that might be something to potentially look into as a, somebody who's growing in uh, fabric beds or uh, that kind of style, because I saw it have great benefit for them. And I think it could also just help uh, management. If I would, I would definitely want to see the data and not just something that a farm said, Hey, we tried this and it worked, you know, I'd like to see it replicated because doing something like that would take so much effort. And really when it comes down to it with the systems that I run, it's super minimal, man. I mean, these things operate, they, they function really, really well because of simplicity. You know, it's like an old car that has a roll down window, turn knob, right? That thing's less likely to break than, you know, a, uh, a new car that requires electronics and, and whatnot. So some things have the benefit being simple, you know, more complex systems have more points of failure and how, do, how does the water get delivered to your bed? So you have a, a fertigation system that's hooked up to a timer and it'll pump it in a certain volume of, of water. And is it like top water have, through a mister though? I'm, like physically, how is it traveling into the, from, from the tank to the soil? How is it traveling? Like, are you watering it with a hose? Or are you? Oh, having- it's, it's, everything will be plumbed in. You know, we'll have drop, so we'll have overhead drop down fertigation system that sits at the beginning of the bed. So it's out of the way. And what we can do is we can do uh, a disconnect on them. They'll have independent zones and those zones are hooked up to timer. It says, hey, we're going to turn on zone one and then zone two, you know, and we'll watch each additional length of bed. When, you know, that's for a fully automated system. Some people, some people are hand watering. Uh, I have a guy that's in pots and he has a fertigation system where it is just similar to that, except it has like a cone and it sprays the top. So it does the whole surface and, and, you know, he programs it to how long he wants to water. He makes sure that he fully saturates his soil without any runoff. I like that. The runoff, I feel like can be one, just a waste of water, uh, but two, it can make for anaerobic conditions where if they're like sitting directly in the drip tray or whatever, that water can sit around and cause some negative conditions. If you don't have the good microbial uh, communities that you would get with like a micro plus or something like that, or EM one or EM five. So uh, I definitely think that that's a very, 
effective system and uh, solution. There's just so many ways to go about it. The, uh, oh, yeah. the thing that I, I brought up, I guess, was it'd be more like you set it up before the grow starts. And I'm pretty sure it's just like a porous mat that is laid underneath the uh, soil. I'm trying to find the posters from like over a year ago, but they're a recreational slash medical cannabis grow here in California. And they did have the data as well because they test all of their crops. They weigh all the yields, both like the stuff that they pull off the plant and harvest for sale and things like that. So it's an interesting one. If I do find it, I'll uh, make sure to pop it up and uh, plug what the actual name of the system was. The tricky part about highly about um, drybacks in living systems is that when you start creating conditions that aren't conducive to the biology, they'll start to sporulate, right? And they have this waxy coating and it's hydrophilic. And you could see this in really dry dirt, how it floats on the surface of water. Same principle. You could have hydro, uh, hydrophobic conditions. And if you're not using something like a surfactant or something that can readily hy- rehydrate, the system in its entirety and allow all of those root zones to be fully hydrated to so that the mineral nutrition diffuses into the water that can that can complicate things too so i can understand how having something um, that's feeding from the bottom that always has access to some moisture could keep a more consistently moist soil but um i think that when we start to as you know i'm I'm working with some other uh, some other people, and we're putting together some data and making uh, tools to like monitor these uh, these uh, parameters, like they do in uh, hydroponics, but for living soil. Um, so we'll, we'll see. You'll be able to see not just from a nutritional standpoint, but you'll be able to see EC hydrology, temperature, um, everything on the analytics like real soon in the soil systems. And then we'll be able to create, you know, data analytics for how the nutrition plays in with all of things like drybacks and hydrology, the pH of the soils, the EC of the soil, the, you know. You can get, somebody needs to invent a way to fucking, a box that I can throw a fucking spoon of soil in and get a fucking result, a soil test back that way immediately. Even that's more tricky. 30 minutes. That'd be nice. That's, that's a little more tricky because you have to use something like gas mass spectrometry, uh, uh, machines, oh, mass spectrometers. Uh, you know, and, and things that can rapidly like combust these elements so they can see the actual mineral nutrition. I don't think there's a technology right now and there might be, but it's not metered. It's not calibrated and it would take data analytics to do the calibration to figure out real-time mineral nutrition in the, in the ionic available form. So if we wanted to see KO2 or, you know, potassium hydroxide, which is the, the mineral that, uh, of pota- the potassium element that plants utilize, sequester, we would have to have a specific instrument for that. So we were looking at us, we would be looking at something with like 20 different <laughs> sensors that would all have sense. to be, yeah, calibrated. <laughs> and so if the technology does exist, it's just it would be so inexpensive. It would be so expensive no. to like L up. The next the next time you get your soil dialed in perfect, after you get your soil test back and you amend it, just take a mouthful and let it sit there for like two minutes. And then you just taste test every soil that before you put your plant in. If it tastes the same, you're good to go. Yeah, well, you, you have to do multiple it. samples. You can't do it just once. You have to do it like 
a bunch of times. We'll have to start you a, have a, to make a sure that the Medusa did though. There you go. All mouths are the most uh, have the most senses in the world, I bet. Except perhaps uh, a certain organ on a woman. I want to shout out Anova in chat real quick because I'm too lazy to type a response. But they've asked if you can use Don Dissop for a surfactant, and you absolutely can. Just a drop into your hell, even a five gallon bucket, it would still be sufficient. But I do a drop in, the, in a gallon and it, it went for a foliar spray. Or you can use Yucca, that's a really good one, it's really inexpensive. Yaha is probably one of the best ones because of the amount of saponins that it contains. And it also has things like gibberellins, auxins, and cytokinin. And you can get super, like, um, N NPK nutrient sells a real uh, pure form of it. But, I mean, it will last you. You buy one bag of it, it'll last. Get the small bag, and it'll last you a long, long time because it's a ridiculous amount. It's like a – I don't even have a measurement that small of, of a teaspoon in a, like, five-gallon batch. So it's literally fucking a tiny amount. I think Dr. Coco actually has recommended that before. I mean, I think it's a good good idea just to use it every watering. It, it's so inexpensive. And why not? It's just going to help. And if for the people who don't understand how surfactants work, surfactants lower the surface tension of water. And so what can happen is um, when you have a higher concentration gradient of like a nutrient in soil and you water, it can help move that and distribute it more evenly throughout the system. And so it can help with the distribution um, of nutrient, but it also helps to hydrate the soil. That makes sense. Water is the highway for the microbes. So you want to make sure you got water in the soil. Yeah, when you guys are talking about like the drybacks, um, I forget if anyone here does this, but I know that I've encountered people who um, their intent is to make like the microbiology, the microbiota in their soil, like more resilient to things like drought by like doing dry bracts and basically sort of um, terrorizing their um, soilscape. And it's interesting for one thing, they don't, they're not like confirming what they have in there or anything like that oftentimes. So, I mean, obviously that's, uh, critical to being able to do that at all. But um, I don't know. I think that that's sort of a simplified perspective. I'm not saying anyone else here was saying, it just reminds me of this sort of perspective. You might be able to make the argument that in certain environments, the microbes are going to be uh, more resilient to that. A lot of them, if they're naturally occurring in that location. But um, I guess I just, it just reminds me that not all adaptations are necessarily good ones. And um, just because you have that sort of system doesn't mean that the microbes are like quickly adapting to it. You know what I mean? Like it's uh, presumptuous to think that. Yeah, the, the common adaptation that they're going to have is spoil it. <laughs> like, what <they're, laughs> like what Brandon was just saying, they're going to put that waxy coating on them and then you're going to get fucking hydrophobic shit going on. Well, and like also like, um, I don't know, like these sorts of these sorts of interactions and, and developments are like super complicated and it's not as easy as like I'll just put you know random microbe xyz consortia into the soil and then like do a bunch of drybacks and then suddenly I'm going to have 
and then I'll package it up and sell it for a premium. It's a desert, you know, resilient soil <laughs> microbes. <laughs> like, I don't know. I think the idea between doing drybacks in soil is to kind of oxidize and some of these um, elements have to be oxidized to be available. Some of them have to be reduced. And so I think the idea is to kind of stimulate some of the, the chemistry that's going on. Oh, sure. But in this example, I've just come across people who they want to, they want to like create um, a consortium of microbes and they wanted to have certain traits, but they're being a little bit simple about how those traits come about, I guess is what I'm saying. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's tons of reasons you might want to do something like you're saying. I would um, suggest to the people that you're talking to, Matthew, that, that bring that up. I would say do that in a compost pile. Don't do that with your plant growing in it. You can breed your fucking survivalists over there. Don't make your plant a survivalist too. Well, yeah, right. just someone's trying to create a, a consortium. I mean, the, the way to go about doing that properly would to one be look to look at their their metabolism to see what kind of and then also to see if they can create in those spores that are viable and then you would also want to see what their metabolites are you know what is the benefit of this microorganism because not every organism does the same thing some of them produce different compounds but then the crazy thing is when you get them together sometimes they do something completely different exactly yeah. yep not only that, but some of them will just compete with each other. And so it's like, if you're choosing something that has, that feeds on the same exact source of energy and you put them together, they have the same types of metabolism, they're going to compete for the resources. And so you want to try to create things that have synergies and not competition. You start putting a bunch of things in a bottle that are competing with each other. You're going to end up with one thing. Bottle or in the nature, really. But like even, but like, I totally agree with you. It's a, uh, it's a really pernicious, um, uh, well, I guess I'll just say it is a pernicious perspective because I guess I think people just, they just always think that like all the beneficials are going to be fine. There's not going to be any of this competition. Like, you know, it's, it's all, it's all okay. The people who selected these together, they definitely did the research and made sure that they, they work well together. And, you know, I have no way of checking this anyway, so I'm just going to trust it. And um, I look forward to the, the developments in microbiology that allow people to actually take a look at these sorts of things in their own house for not that much money. I hope that it sort of has like a uh, maybe biohackers are the best or not the best example of this, but like that sort of perspective of like being able to um, actually know what you're dealing with at such a molecular level. Um, and then be just, you can make a informed decisions or you can even um, assess what the microbes are in your environment, maybe. And uh, that'll give you some insight that you wouldn't be able to have otherwise. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, it would be really neat to be able to have the ability to identify at home. And I don't mean this like with a microscope, but be like, hey, this is this family. And, you know, maybe if there's a blockchain data where people have already done this and all the information's on a blockchain, they can compare species and say, oh, you, this, is, this is one that's not uh, on the chain already this is a new species that you found that's local to your area you know let's say it's like buveria bassiana right it's a call it's a ubiquitous microbe 
Um, and, you know, there's so many different species, we can't identify all of them, but eventually I think the technology will allow us to do that. And then we'll be able to see like, hey, this specific one, and that's what they do is they find the best ones that'll be like, oh, this one has a specific target. It doesn't harm bees, it doesn't harm this, but it takes out lantern fly, you know, or something like that. And so that, that those types of independent research that can be done really cost-effectively, affordable, affordably, we'll be able to really advance um, the microbes without having to actually like create new ones in a lab because I don't I think that's kind of going to you know you I could see how there could be benefits but it could be a negative impact by creating something in a lab that's you know a GMO microbe you know so, like something that might have the ability to outcompete everything else and that might have a negative impact on the whole ecosystem biosphere yeah like we were talking like I was saying last podcast at the very end um we're kind of, it seems like in some ways we're already there, even with the natural microbes that we've like taken and, and sort of influenced or cultured, you know, and I guess in a way we've also already done that, not just in the last like 50 years, uh, but also like, um, you know, human development and culture, there's microbes associated with us that, uh, you know, with like the yeasts and the fermentation space and that kind of a thing. And, better believe there's some horizontal gene transfer happening with like MRSA and, you know, staphylococcus and that kind of stuff. I even getting into, you know, there's a resistance to antibiotics uh, genes, basically, that get into, um, you know, soil microbes even. And um, yeah, so it's very, very fascinating to see all this sort of jumping around. Um, but yeah, if you're able to like be smart about it and like, not allow that to happen. That's always better. And also you can also, you can get a situation where like you mentioned with Bouveria Bastiana, you could have like, there's many different isolates out there that exist and you might find one that is like you were saying, sort of more uh, specific and, you know, it could just be a, a matter of how that particular strain developed. But now that you know that and you're able to test that um, you can put that, those traits in a, in a database. And then if you, you track it with other, um, uh, you know, uh, tracking mechanisms, essentially, maybe like sequence the genome or PCR or something like that. And you can find, you, maybe even if you don't know the species, you can find that like, oh, well, I know that this, um, you know, these microbes make these compounds based on these genes that I know um, that we found or something like that. So you can, you can kind of know, like you were saying, like maybe it solubilizes uh, phosphorus or maybe it, um, you know, produces these compounds that I, I want that might influence the plant's growth in a way that's um, desirable for me for an end product. Maybe it makes it uh, grow longer or larger, or maybe it will uh, toughen the epidermis or something, make it stouter, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, but yeah, that's uh, far into the future still. That's the cutting edge of this shit. <laughs> yep. Everything is going to be all business, all logistics. It's all going to be blockchain. It's all, And the reason why is because AI can do all these like crazy analytics and just make everything run more sufficiently. Uh, it's been really cool to see AI assisted um, uh, predictions for like proteins or like things that we're predicting things that might exist. And then we find that they actually do exist. Um, 
and then this sort of computational model was able to sort of predict that um, or predict the different combinations that are possible. Uh, that kind of stuff is really pretty fascinating to me. I've been and, seeing it used to uh, oh, even yeah. model like insect uh, when they're going to be ingressing on certain populations in certain cities uh, based on prior data and things like that, basically just best estimates. And it's scary how accurate a lot of that stuff is, whether it's like weather or pest related. The AI yeah, they is able can't to predict the weather, us. Jack. Well, I mean, if you look at the averages for the last hundred years or whatever, they can better. tell you. I'm not saying they're going to tell you what it's going to be tomorrow, but there's people that sell insurance to farms based on how much it's going to rain or how, how hot it's expected to be in a certain year. And like, I know where I'm going to hundreds of years, man. The lake has know, they said Florida cycles. Was be underwater, 1986. Well, I don't know who they is in this case, but I'm talking about people that are literally billionaires off of what they've accomplished and they're making more food produced in the United States than anywhere else in the world. Uh, so, I mean, we're definitely successful in our ability to apply science to improve our yields and outputs on things and, and allowing ourselves the best. So like, I'm not saying that they're going to be hundred percent accurate, but when they have an idea of, you know, pests, for example, spring and summer in California, spider might start to come around at a certain time. And if you're just a cultivation who's barely scraping by, it, a pest invasion can literally wipe you out. So if you know, okay, this week or this month is the most likely time that we're going to start seeing pests, then you can start to preventatively spray a little more or you can apply your predators um, in advance of doing that as opposed to doing it all year long and draining yourself of resources. Um, you can just use that sort of strategy, I guess, is a, one of the nice ways AI can be used, but it's not 100% accurate. I, I personally think that a lot of that stuff is really far. AI is like a buzzword to trick people out of their money. Oftentimes it's like, Hey, we've got this AI system. And since people don't know what AI is or how it works, they can just throw the word AI on any new product and then try and sell it to people. And oftentimes the AI is not as cracked up as, uh, or as good as it's cracked up to be, so to speak. So it's like, uh, I think, I think even people or AI, uh, not that I'm a expert either, but it seems like, um, you know, the real difficulty with these sorts of, um, systems that are fairly complex is that uh, we don't do very good with emergent properties. So um, to oversimplify it, you know, you plug in a bunch of variables or inputs and you can get a reasonable idea based on a context, but it assumes that you've like correctly articulated what that context is, right? So, uh, and even then there might be, it's like, uh, I was, I was uh, watching a Cornell video about, which I posted on Instagram, um, about uh, photosensitivity in cannabis, among other things. And the guy mentioned, the individual mentioned um, like chemical promiscuity with like regards to the production of certain cannabinoids. And, you know, like the fact that this is very common with a lot of volatiles, but like the process, the cellular processes are not like perfect, right? So like um, Rubisco is an example of that where like you know, it's not totally efficient. And ever so often it like, it makes a very inefficient uh, reaction during photosynthesis, but uh, also with like terpenes and cannabinoids um, there, you know, there's precursor compounds that are made and those are, um, you know, affected over the span of metabolism. And sometimes it's just like probabilistic that like a hydrogen atom 
or something like, you know, moves one way or another, and you might get one compound versus another compound. You might get a terpene that's very similar chemically, but not the exact same. And little things like that happen all the time and um, can be the reason for some of the interesting like bouquets that we get for various uh, plants and, and how they off gas those volatiles. So yeah, like sometimes it really is just a matter of, we don't know exactly, like it could be 60% CBD or it could be, you know, uh, 40% this other compound or something like that. Or like uh, you were talking about earlier, like we think we're putting in all the inputs, but for a long time, we thought that plants generally, not just cannabis needed, let's call it 17 nutrients and micronutrients and things like that. And now we know that it needs more than that. And we're always finding out new things. So I think it's interesting that uh, as good as science gets, there's always more that we can learn. And uh, it's good to be humble and to keep searching for knowledge and do our best to, uh, you know, use the current data to try and move it forward. And if and when we find out that it might not be the best, then to leave it behind. But Matthew, in regards to pot sizes, because that's what we talked about for the most of the first hour so far, is there any like IPM implications that you could think of or uh, that come across your mind when maybe thinking about like smaller pots or larger pots or just different pot sizes that, or even types of pots that are used that maybe come to mind from your experience? It's somewhat obvious, but the first thing that comes to my mind is that like you can get plants to get root bound sometimes, and that can obviously be a problem. Um, one thing that I had that I've multiple times had to uh, explain to certain family members sometimes is that um, you shouldn't have like, this is it goes for various plants, but you don't want a pot that will uh, not drain. <laughs> I think a lot of people here already know that, that a lot of the times that's not very helpful. Um, and sometimes it's okay, but, um, oh, that was weird. Uh, so sometimes it's okay, but the, it really just depends on the context of how you're growing and that kind of a thing. But for IPM, you know, you want to make sure that you're, I'll, I'll say this, um, it's kind of adjacent to the pot, but like the quality of your water coming in is super important. Um, you know, making sure that we were talking about failure points earlier. Um, well, Brandon was mentioning in you, Jack, also with like ir the irrigation. And, uh, you know, I have many fond and not so fond memories of uh, <laughs> assessing where on the irrigation line um, there's a clog or some other sort of breakdown in the system. Uh, maybe there's a leak, maybe there's something else. And these can be uh, fabulous ways for pathogens to get introduced or for an environment to become more suitable to them because maybe there's not enough water or too much water. And uh, yeah, so when you're integrating your irrigation system with your pot system, you really want to make sure there is that synergy and that you're not like other people were saying already before me, um, you know, overwatering. Not only is it wasteful, uh, which is always a shame, but also because it can very, very much be uh, deleterious to your plant health. And if you do get a pathogen uh, that's already there, maybe dormant, but then this sort of um, maybe low oxygen environment from all the water or something like that happens or the roots get, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They become suffocated almost and start to uh, putrefy. Um, you know, that becomes very easy to be exploited. And those problems become difficult very quickly. Anyone who has never dealt with Phytophthora, Pythium, and uh, other sorts of uh, microbes like that, um, it's very lethal very quickly. 
So it's very important. You can be fine 99% of the time, be almost done with your grow, have a really amazing plant, and you can have that problem happen. And then in a few days, your plant is dying and it's not fun. That doesn't sound fun at all. And it's good to be aware of that. So I'm glad that you uh, shared that with the growers because uh, nobody wants to come back to dead plants. And if you can avoid it, always good too. One thing uh, the major general 420 army said on a show recently was, I found this is kind of a just interesting anecdote. He was talking about growing outdoors and he was using rock wool cubes. And a lot of people felt that the need to cut the wrapping, the plastic wrapping off the rock wool cube when they transplanted it. Well, he said one harvest, like half the plants, his buddy cut all the plastic off of them. He didn't cut the rock wool plastic off of his. And some animal came along and ate all the ones that he cut, his buddy cut the plastic off of, but the ones that were wrapped in the plastic survived. So I just thought that was kind of like a very, very <laughs> interesting anecdote, but it's probably so uh, niche and not going to affect too many people. And I'm not even going to like put it out there that it, it will save or protect your plants. But I just found that as like a unique or quirky little uh, story that I, I do tend to believe because I don't think a lot of animals want to chew through or eat plastic, but they might be. Oh, I believe for sure. To go through like a natural medium. I can see like a foraging rodent or something just being like, you know what? I don't know if I want to do the, you know. I don't want to do the work here. And then like right next to it or something, there's a plant that's not protected. And they're like, all right. <laughs> the easiest path, right? The path right. of least resistance, as some would say. Well, the second hour, we're not quite there yet, but I think that uh, we've all kind of touched on pot sizes and a few other topics here. But one of the other uh, topics that I feel like we haven't touched on in a while that a lot of people really like, I've even seen some people say this is my favorite topic ever. One suggested and when we've talked about it in the past is training, different types of plant training. So like topping, uh, LST, all that different stuff and uh, methods that we use and then methods that are possible that maybe we don't use and why we don't use them, but we could maybe see other people using them with success. So I'll pass it in reverse order this time and I'll start with uh, Kyle Breeder. Training, yes. So uh, I want to say I'm, I'm like a little unorthodox in regards to that. So, I mean, I, I, I use a top here and there just to kind of um, – not even for more heads, but mostly to just kind of like for uh, timing and uh, basically essentially it's a form of training if you want, I guess you could call it that, uh, but just keep them shorter. Um, but typically I'm just kind of looking for plants that do their own thing. Like I'm not, I can't stand this is, again, this is just me. Everyone's got their own stuff, but I can't stand plants that have like these whispery secondaries that you have to stake up or you have to trellis or else it's just all over the place. And it's just all effed up. Like, uh, and I have some really cool videos that I could share too uh, somehow, but uh, I just want them to do their own thing. And those are stuff that I kind of look for specifically. Um, so I'm like, essentially, I guess I'm not into plant training, even though it's extremely vital in some scenarios and especially in, you know, maybe commercial settings, you definitely need it. But as a, as a breeder, I'm just trying to give you the good uh, material. And then if you want to train from there to get to utilize the best out of that plant, then obviously that's what you're going to do as the grower. But uh, that's just kind of where I'm at. I'll say from the commercial standpoint, I think that you're actually not wrong to want to pick for the plants that need to have nothing done to them. Breeder Steve down in Columbia said he wants an upright, what he described as erect plant that grows by itself strong enough to hold up its own structure. And, you know, he doesn't want one that's going to flop over like you're talking about. And in a commercial, commercial environment, like not just like, um, no offense to any of the indoor cultivation settings that are going on right now, but even like the largest ones, 
in two decades from now are going to be looked at in micro scale because what they're going to be able to do outdoor acres and acres and hectares of basically drill pressed cannabis and just planting it and letting it go um, versus that's like the true commercial they're not going to have to have really much human interaction they're going to be able to drive over with tractors and have uh, commercial fertilizers doing all the stuff like they do with corn so um, you won't you won't you won't see that you won't see that for anything other than things like distillate or for things that are going into like products you'll never Ooh. see mass cultivated outdoor for like you know that's going to just be for general consumption but i mean that's what most general stuff is most people are not we are the very few percentage we're the people that know the most about the flavors and stuff most people drink bud light most people drink coors light they don't drink your local IPA or craft beer or most expensive $50,000 bottle of wine, they're going to go and get the, you know, two buck chuck at Trader Joe's or uh, whatever it is. So I think that whether it's smoked as flour, I, I know people that smoke hemp in red States, the smokable flour and that stuff's grown outdoors and uh, they do extract it. I mean, happy buds hemp. I have some CBN and I'm smoking on, this is like live resin pen, but uh, even in indoors, a lot of the stuff is being grown to be produced into distillates, uh, isolates, terpenes, and different fractions. And some are live rosin, live resin or whatever, but it's not as often as it used to be. I mean, it, for a long time, it was either just flour or hash and like very uh, traditional basic hashes compared to the variety of textures and flavors and things that we have now. So I don't typically, think that it'll disappear. That's a, typically that's a byproduct of, so in commercial settings, what they'll do is they'll harvest all the best parts of the plant. They'll use things like lowers or, you know, they sort out their different size buds. Some, you know, some stuff goes to processing, some stuff. So when you're operating on like a commercial scale, like the reason why they have that is because not all the plant is going to make it into flower. And so they want to be able to maximize the usage of that plant and the product. Uh, and, and so they create other product lines that don't necessarily have to be visually presentable and then they turn those things into other products edibles or tinctures or uh you know hash infused products or whatever it is yeah i i'm just seeing even here in the california market right now the cheapest stuff per ounce or whatever and a lot of people buy based on the dollar amount and a lot of people are flower smokers still and i know california is kind of a unique market in a sense but i think that a lot of the world still like flour and a lot of them are going to shop for the cheapest stuff so that means a lot of them are going to be smoking. I think, Just like said, I think that grow outside and not going to have this cheapest shit, roll it into fucking like a pack of cigarettes, you know, get a pack of cannabis cigarettes for like fucking 10 bucks or something stupid. Yeah. If we, if we uh, look at other smokable products like tobacco and it's not the same thing. And I know people are going to hate me equalizing the two, <laughs> but because they're not the same thing. But if we just look at, like if if cannabis does actually become uh, much more democratized globally, I actually agree with the concept, and I, I definitely have seen examples of it where a lot of the flour is being turned into um, concentrate. Sometimes it's for duplicitous reasons. Sometimes it's because they just really want to make sure it's a single source product. But regardless, there's going to be tons of people who will, like Spartan just said. Uh, want to buy like a pack of, um, you know, Mirarillos for two bucks or five bucks or something. It's probably some exorbitant tax on it. Um, 
you know, uh, globally. Like if we look at other parts of the world, um, I just think that like sometimes you just literally don't care or don't have access to the um, uh, processing systems for, for whatever reason. It might not even be like a, a monetary reason and uh, people will still make use of it because it's simple to do that. Just like yes. home growers, right? Let me uh, jump in and say, if we do our jobs as the cheap home grow show, more people will be growing. I don't care how cheap it gets. Grow your own. It's going to be better than anything you could buy, most likely, even if it's top shelf. I mean, if you grow a plant and it's malnutrition, if you at least get some nutrition to it in flower and it goes <laughs> to harvest full time, that shit is going to be good weed. It may not be the most, but it's going to be good if you do it right. And yeah, that's what I say. Grow your own. Don't even buy any. <laughs> yeah, don't pay, the, don't pay the tax if you don't have to, right? Like, like, and you'll tax know where I was made. I agree. I'll I say agree this. I agree 100%. Everybody should if they can. But there is a population out there who cannot. And there's a population who will not just because they haven't listened to these shows. They don't know it's possible yet. They haven't been exposed to how affordable they can do it versus they're hooked on going to the shop buying that few eighths a week or ounce a week or ounce a month, whatever it is, they've got their thing. And if you look at tobacco, like somebody had just mentioned, I think it was Matthew, <laughs> they've used extracts from tobacco to literally lace like paper and smokable paper to give people the high or experience of the nicotine. So people are so hooked on the nicotine, they get addicted to a new product that's created and I think that's unfortunately going to happen with cannabis where I, some, some people criticize dabs for that, where it's like, you know, I'm not going to get into that. But uh, the idea is, I guess, technically, there's going to be the possibility where there's going to be someone growing a full field of hemp for flour. And then they take that flour, grind it up and make pre-rolls with it. And then they spike it or lace it or whatever you want to say, uh, uh, supercharge okay. it, enhance it, whatever they want to call it, uh, infuse it is the term that they use in the legal markets now, but they're going to infuse that with the distillates, with the terpenes, with the other cannabinoid products that are being grown from the high THC or THCV or CBDV or whatever the minor cannabinoid of, of choice is for you. And then they're going to get that at bulk and then they're going to pump that in just like they're doing with the pens now. They'll get distillate. And when they did 100% distillate, people didn't really like it. So they started going 95 distillate and like 5% terps. Now you're seeing like 90, 10 and mixes of other things, not just terps, but flavonoids and minor cannabinoids as well. And I think that they're getting closer and closer to the mark, but there's going to be a huge market for like people like us, I think for at least the first few years that people are going to want the natural stuff, the stuff that, you know, people grew themselves or grew under the sun or grew in a greenhouse, whatever it is, but just got the flower, can break it down, feel it, the sticky in their hand, just like they have for decades, you know? So, but there's a lot of new kids coming up that have never had those experiences, who've never had seeded buds, for example. So there's entirely different perspectives that uh, maybe none of us even can relate to anymore because like some of these kids aren't growing up with like a $7,000 pound. It's like a thousand dollar pound. If they're lucky, you know, a lot of the stuff is way less than that. So the prices are just not even comparable to what many of us came up seeing routinely. I'm also excited for non-smoking stuff. Oh, keep going. Go ahead, Matthew. I'll just say, yeah, just, uh, you know, quickly. Also, there's more people nowadays, people, I would say our generation and a bit the generation before us. And also, um, 
you know, further generations from us, I feel like there is a general trend towards like, you know, we're certainly seeing it in agricultural sectors where people are demanding like stuff that isn't poisonous. Yeah, exactly. So there's definitely people More who organic, are going to have higher, I feel like there will be higher standards to a degree that we haven't seen. I mean, if I'm being very honest, uh, that even predate my own existence, right? So do you think that you're maybe biased because we live in California where a lot of people go to farmers markets and care about organics where like I'm from the Midwest where a lot of people eat McDonald's and Dunkin' Donuts every day, don't really give mm-hmm. a shit about pesticides on their fruits, vegetables or whatever they're going to buy. Again, Dude. just like the cheapest weed, they're going to go to Walmart. They're going to buy the cheapest produce, whether it's organic or conventional, they're getting the cheapest one. And what's available. I'm definitely biased because of all the reasons that you said, absolutely, and some that oh. you didn't say. Well, but two points here. lack of education is a big problem, though, because it's not that they don't care. But not everyone them... will care. Um, that's let that's, me tell. Let me, this will save a lot of people a lot of heartache. Something I've had to learn a lot is that yeah. just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean that people will care about it too. Yeah, and not only right. that, but a lot of people don't give a shit because they're worried about you know going to work and like making sure that their family's fed they don't have time to worry about all these other things because they have other worries to worry about and take care yeah but that's a problem with priorities and let me say this i came i went to visit california every uh, as i'm walking through oakland or san francisco everything is uh you know organic this organic that uh what is it a free range chicken eggs for breakfast all this there is no signs like that in new york there is none of that you have to seek that shit out mostly you know what? Nowadays, it might, it's probably a lot more prevalent than than like a couple of years back. But yeah, I was amazed at how much options of health you guys have there compared to where I'm at, just in general. You almost have to oh, choose absolutely. to be unhealthy here. We have all the fast food and stuff, but like I grew up in the Midwest eating mostly junky, shitty food. My family all did. I just grew up eating what they ate. And I came out here and I was like running track in college. And a lot of people around me were eating healthier. And there's just more healthy grocery stores, more farmers markets and things like that available so i had the choice of more healthy options because it was available but i can also relate to the people who like tau and in certain spots in new york um i know that there are spots like in more rural new york where you could probably find the farmer's markets and the free range chicken eggs but in new york city and you know certain areas like that you're not going to run into that as much and hopefully it's getting better but it, it all really does show the difference of perspective but I think a lot I'm of us are saying, coming at it from a really high level. Yeah. Matthew let me right ca- let me characterize what I was saying because you're totally right about all of that, and I might have made a, a major mistake in how I phrased this. I think that generally people will, um, or I've noticed that I think that if we look at maybe the last hundred years, um, we had access to things that were a lot better for us for reasons that we didn't even realize at the time. And also things that weren't so much for the same reason. But I think that there's a general ten, trend of awareness, not necessarily that people always make the right choice, which is a different thing entirely. Um, but I do think that there's more people who get incensed. People find out about things easier than they did before in various ways. And there are more, um, although they don't catch everything and they're not always optimized. Um, there are various organizations and institutions that are there to sort of check and make sure that things don't get um, ridiculously toxic or poison in regards to things like salmonella outbreaks and other sorts of things like that. Um, so I guess those that infrastructure is there. But at the end of the day, just like with choosing to make the right decision, whatever that might be for your situation, 
um, it's kind of the same thing there where you might be more aware of it. And I think there's more attention in that way. Um, so I feel like generally people are not going to accept certain things that people didn't accept before, but that's not going to be everyone. Absolutely not. And we're going to have a market that is going to be everywhere. It's going to have at least testing to where the stuff isn't harmful. Right. So even if there is low, we'll call it low quality product or, or mass produced product or whatever you want to call this product that we're talking about that is grown outside and, and, and then altered, we'll say, we'll say infused, I guess that's the word we're using, infused with uh, outside terpenes. Um, there's still a place for it. And I'm fine with that because I, even though I, I live in a bubble and, and I'm a, I consider myself a connoisseur of weed, I know that there's tolerance involved. So I don't care who you are, you're only going to get away with smoking the cheapest of the cheap weed for so long before that weed doesn't do it for you anymore. And you're going to have to upgrade. And eventually those people, if they continue to consume, are going to be at the same level that I am and are going to be wanting, you know, it's pointless. It's, it's, it's definitely a waste of money, even though it's cheaper. It's a complete waste of money for me to buy yeah. that because I'll consume it all and not feel a thing. And not enjoy it. That's exactly. what happens. Once you get the good stuff, you don't want to go back to the like once when I was coming up. Once you had the real good, uh, the the like homegrown that was good, like indoor grown, you didn't want to go buy regs ever again. And then you're on a quest. That was it. You only wanted the good shit. And that's what's going to happen Absolutely. as these people come up. I'm sure. And there's we'll always going to be a vast majority that wants the cheapest thing there. That's all. They're looking at price and nothing else, and that's fine. And that might work for That's them. That's fucking people's jobs. You're keeping people working. Yeah, but here's the thing. Regardless of what your price point is, everybody wants to smoke good weed. Nobody is ever like, let's go smoke mids. You know, like. I disagree. Like, I'm so, I'm so <laughs> Some sorry. Some people don't know what mids is. I'm so sorry to say this, Brandon. I wish you were right. <laughs> but it's not true. No, and I've literally yeah. experienced it. And it's unfortunate. People yeah, get attached have to. to what they're used to. And yep. it pains me. People have asked me if I had anything weaker because, yeah, it was too much. So that's a thing, maybe. I was going to say that, too, Tal, because I know a yeah. few ladies on my street who they only smoke once a day at the most, maybe once a week. And they take like a puff of a joint. A joint will last them a whole week. They'll take a puff of it, put it out and pass the fuck out. And that's their whole smoking for the day. Their tolerance doesn't skyrocket because they're not smoking, waking, baking and smoking all day. Right, so right. It's a different situation i guess for everybody and and like matthew was kind of alluding to some people they smoke mids not even knowing it's mids and that's their favorite shit because it's, and they, think it's yeah. and they, they think it's great and they think it's great and they get attached to the taste the flavor the brand and everything and because headaches psychological <laughs> yeah no yeah you are right it's it's um i'm saying this exuberantly because like i'm i'm replaying it as we talk about this in my in my head i'm visual i have a memory of exactly what we're talking about here uh, and um it's just you know it's just shocking but i guess it's just like what you were saying about like uh coors light right like or the claw right they want to like, drink like 12 coors lights not like two 10 ipas and like my one buddy and he sold it at his college 
And he actually bought the shittier stuff because the community he sold to like to smoke blunts and they're not going to pay 60 and eighth to roll up a blunt and smoke in two seconds. They wanted to smoke eight blunts. So they wanted to throw 20 bucks and get a shit ton of Reggie and they didn't care if it was seeded. They'd fucking pick through the seeds and roll it up and smoke on it all night long. And it, if it barely got them high, who gave a shit? They just wanted to fucking toke on it. The tobacco was probably getting them as high as the fucking weed was, but the, <laughs> It really does. It's certain markets. Like man. the ritual is as important, right? Like, I guess well, that's, that's what I want to really convey here. You're totally right, Brandon. Actually. There are people out there right now that are old enough to smoke weed that will never have to know the pains of True. what I had to go through to get a nickel bag of dirt <laughs> brown Mexican bud. Okay, That's and I'll tell you true. what, I made many trips to the park to see the one-legged Mexican on the bicycle because he always <laughs> had the weed, and it was always terrible, but we were always stoked. It was always a mission. Sometimes he wasn't around. We'd have to go find somebody's older brother, somebody's <laughs> older brother's friend, and it was, um, dude, we would literally go on app, like missions, and they would take hours. It was literally just to go find a 20 sack of weed or a fucking half ounce, you know, and it was like. Dude, that's how it is in other states still when i was in florida before like before they got all their medical shit going on i was driving 30 minutes at the minimum to meet up with my plug and other times 45 minutes to an hour both ways to go just to score a sack of what i would consider like a five out of ten at the best on the best day maybe a six out of ten if they got some fire but like it was a five out of ten if i'm being generous so it definitely shows like the, the access and, and locations really matter and like uh, people still go to restaurants you know not to cut you off but like you know people start, still go to certain restaurants that are like i don't know like like out of nostalgia like i would be lying if i you know there were food like what you were saying jack i've grown up uh you know when i was a child i had um half days in elementary school and my mother would take me to uh, some restaurant on the half days sometimes for lunch or whatever and like you know you just you just develop memories about certain places and as you grow older those memories might still be very potent uh for me a lot of those have sort of um changed over time but you know it's, it's kind of what i'm trying to articulate here like there are people who will just like you just said about like you know having like one blowing want to blow through 20 blunts instead of two really good ones um i have <laughs> Do you remember the high desert people I told you about? They, um, a friend of mine who I've known for a very long time. One time I bought his mother cigarettes as a gift because uh, she likes to smoke and I got her some really nice ones. And um, uh, <laughs> this will, this saves me forever. She, uh, she exchanged them to get uh, the lower quality ones. Had... Of them. <laughs> <laughs> It was amazing, and uh, I'll never forget that moment. <laughs> but so, yeah, so that's definitely happened. Uh, People like what they like, and you cannot account for yeah. taste. That is a crazy exactly. thing. You cannot account for taste. People say that in a, like it's an insult, but it's actually very true. Just the reality, everyone's palate is different. So people are going to like different shit. It tastes different to them. 10 people smoke the same herb. If they had to write it down privately on a piece of paper and then submit it, I guarantee you all 10 of them are going to have different results. You might have like an overlap, like five said citrus, but one might have said lemon. One might have said lime. One might say feet. One might say gas. Like I've seen this at parties, like pass it around. Everybody smokes it, takes a hit. And then 
whisper in, in somebody's ear what they think it smells like, and then if nobody says it out loud, where like other people can be in, influenced by yeah, their thoughts. I'm super it. picky. I won't even smoke it if it doesn't taste good. If it don't taste good, I won't. Hit, I'll hit it once to try it. If it doesn't taste good, I'll be like, nope, sorry. <laughs> That's a good place to be, man. I, I I love that we're in a world where like you went from earlier saying you would go see the Mexican dude with one leg on the bicycle and hope he was there just to get a shitty pack of brown. But now you're like, this doesn't even taste that good. Like, I'm not going to keep smoking this shit anymore. Like how far we've come. But yeah. those days, Brandon, that was like uh common experiences. It's like, you know, it was like, uh, I mean, it wasn't just like one of us that was going on these missions. It yeah, was like, like we, we collectively pitched in because yeah. we were broke ass kids yeah, with no jobs. And it's like, I got five, I got five, four of us have fucking 20 bucks. Okay. We oh, can get fucking crazy. high today. Dude, I never pulled the, uh, I guess I realized later in life that I was the fucking idiot that, you know, everybody's throwing in 20 and then the one guy who went to get it wasn't throwing in shit. So he was just like smoking for free because he had the connection or whatever. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it was funny. I didn't realize that until later in life that I was always paying my full, you know, amount and some people were, uh, taking advantage, I guess, but. Uh, oh, yeah. you, you learn live and learn or or you have to p- pass your money off to because oh you can't go up that's like it's got you know so secretive and shit you know and be like and then you get a fucking pinched bag and you know homeboy went up there sat up there for fucking 15 minutes taking bong hits off of the weed that you just fucking bought you know and then you fucking get a short bag at the end of the day you know it's i remember the good old Some days people don't it, was, it was different it was just so much different I got a bag of shake one time like it was a quick like it dropped the uh, bag in my lap and like handed him the cash and by the time he got back to his car and like, was pulling off I look at my fucking bag and it's just like a balled up piece it looks like a ball but it's just the shake in the bottom of a bag it was like supposed to be an eighth and it ended up being like three grams so thankfully Dude, we were, I was getting starter kits just some dirt weed and seeds you know basically that's what it was good for I should have planted that shit instead of smoked it yeah, we were already talking about Mexican weed. A lot of people actually grew it out and then found like different shit because it had when you smoked it fresh, it was actually pretty good. But when you got it in this a brick and it traveled, you know, however it traveled and got hot and nasty. I grew a lot of Mexican. I grew a lot of Mexican weed out. That shit ain't that good. It wasn't. It Not wasn't compared good. to today's stuff for sure. It wasn't even good compared to the stuff that we were growing, like you know, just the regular like you know, stuff, sour diesel and cushions and stuff like that. All that, you know, it was weird though, because you would think that those Mexican varieties would have been sativa and they never were. They were always broadleaf dominant, short stocky varieties. You know, so, on that note though, I'm, I'm actually very excited to see like Central and Southern America, like become more like open to the possibility of it on, on like, like on the legal side. And uh, I think there could be some really great stuff coming mm-hmm. out of that area, to be honest. Great, Columbia. magnificent horticulturalists out there, agriculturalists. So I'm curious oh, to see that blossom more. Yeah, it'll be yeah. the market there will be a, a lot lower price point. So product will have to be grown mainly like you were talking about, right? Yeah. For They're markets like that to where like you can mass produce <laughs> and then keep, and have a really low price point. Um, I'm working with some people down in Reader in Steve's Mexico. been talking about this for a long time. He has hectares down there in like six different geological zones, and he has a whole team of agronomists who they measure it by the right. centimeter per you day. That. They have the number of like leaves, uh, the number of like 
tips on the leaves. They are taking account of all this interesting stuff, but then they grow out all these different varieties. And it's these giant aquaponic setups with like, I don't know if it's like a crocodile, but like a similar uh, animal. It's not a crocodile or an alligator, but something like that in his aquaponic setup. You know, I wonder if the brick, the what we call Mexican brickweed might not have originated in Mexico even, but it might have uh, came up through the southern I can, border. I can tell you that. I know there's absolutely farms of marijuana in Mexico. Dutch, it, they they all, all had uh, heavy Dutch influence because they were hybridized, I think, in like the 80s or something like that. Well, oh, here's yeah, the other thing. 80s. A lot of it was being bricked here in the U.S., Go watch the movie Acapulco Gold on YouTube from the 70s. And there was dudes that were bricking their weed here in the U.S. and then distributing it, whether it was in Kentucky or throughout the Midwest. There was a whole bunch of different people doing it. And they had these giant press machines. I'm like surprised none of them got any like rosin out of that shit. But um, you can definitely look and people were doing it here. They were growing it. They didn't even know. Some of them didn't even get to, to flower. They'd cut the leaves off and they were bricking the leaf, just straight up leaf, a bunch of leaf. <laughs> like. It, they were so uh, ignorant, I guess, in certain respects back then that a lot of them didn't even know like about photoperiodism and getting the plants to flip the flower. And that's the, why all the numbers from the DEA are saying that the weed is so much stronger now than before. Yeah. Skewed by that shit, oh, yeah. And the product yeah. that they use, the, the populations that they have to use for research are not representative to say the least well and the other thing i was gonna say about uh columbia was like breeder steve is one of those people that's talking about growing it commercially and being able to sell like basically untrimmed like baby arm style like corn cob buds for like 10 cents on the dollar like because he's going to be growing it at such mass with such minimal um you know they're just going to harvest the plant dry it and then sell it to you and they're not going to do a bunch of manicuring and this stuff but some of the stuff is going to be ground up for you know distillate or pre-rolls and things like that but he ultimately when the legality because like at first they allowed it to be legal but you can only export like mass and i think it had to be shredded he couldn't even sell any pure flour it had to be run through a giant shredder and but columbia is one of the countries that allows export currently i know canada exports currently they export a lot of their best stuff actually goes to germany so most of the canadian market doesn't even get to see a lot of the best medicine that's grown in their country it's being exported Israel imports a big amount too. They're a big customer to a lot of the world. Huge research center. So they're trying to get all the different varieties from all over the world to see how the profiles are and how they're effective for different medicines and things like that. But I guess we only really uh, touched on, I think, two people's training. Brandon and um, Kyle talked a little bit about training and we meandered onto some other subjects there. So I guess I'll pass it to Spartan Growing. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you like to train the plant. Um, man, I don't really do a whole lot. The only time I train is if I, I let the plant grow. And, but like I said, uh, earlier, I alluded to earlier, I guess, um, my goal on my plants here is to fill a two by two canopy. So I'm training the plant into a two by two canopy. So, um, I, I usually will do that with, uh, either topping or if I, if, if it's it shot up on me or something, I might do, uh, a hard stressful <laughs> pull that whole branch down and 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 pinch it to make sure it stays down or maybe just low stress train it at all is very very situational so I, I i do all of those things but i do i try to do very little um if the plant's going to grow the way i want it to grow uh it just straight up 
and fill that two by two block and just grow straight up. That's perfect. I'll just love it. You know, let it be. Once I put that first net down, it'll be very, very little adjusting and I'll be good to go. Um, but otherwise I'm bending branches or, or whatever I have to do to fill that. I'm just trying to fill that two by two, uh, spot so I can plug them all in together and they just, they're interchangeable and it's that way they can be mobile and it makes my life easy. You make it almost like a little like two by two hedge. I've seen in your yep. space to fill out the whole entire footprint of your four by four. And uh, it's smart. I wanted to say one of the things, I don't know if you just mentioned it or not, but I saw his name in the chat is grandmaster level and people call it the GML topping or grandmaster level topping where people will take off like the top two leaves that kind of like if, if my head is the new growth and the, these leaves on the side were like the uh, leaves that are supporting that shoot, they would, instead of topping it, remove this leaf and that leaf. And that basically stunts this growth a little bit. So the other growth uh, catches yeah, up that. to it. I do that a lot in veg or even early flower. I'll still do that week one, week two. And it does help to slow those, especially week one, week two, when you're trying to manipulate and really build that final shape. I find that when you, when you do that, it really does slow those tops down. And it really helps do that with minimal stress to the plant, really. I, I really do like that technique. I like that method to uh, widen out the plant and just push it up a bit. Right. Um, That's usually how... what I'm having to do is make it. I don't, I'm, just, I'm kind. Of, if I do train, I'm usually trading out. I'm usually trying to get it to push out more. And I find that can be more effective than like trying to LST and like bend it down and pull it out. Where if instead of doing that, you just let this top stay where it's at, deleaf it, and then let the other ones kind of grow up and out to catch it. And it makes more of that candelabra style look to it as opposed yeah. to like curving the top down you're allowing the bottoms to grow up and make it even so shout out to grandmaster level i also wanted to shout out socal weed nerd who uh he has a string called mendo loco that gets really tall and he was growing a plant next to a fence kind of like how spartans got and he didn't want to get too tall so he kept on doing like the gml top so i don't really know any other way to what, what that, that term is actually called but um but he kept doing that over and over and over again. And instead of this plant like stretching, like it normally does and getting super tall, it just became like a giant hedge, like a super wide bush and just like <laughs> grew across. Like a, he said, it was like three feet tall, but like seven feet wide. So it's pretty badass that you can really uh, manipulate the cannabis plant like that. There was even a product. Um, I can't remember the name, but there was a little like plastic ring it would grow up into. And then there was like a mosquito net and it grew into this ring and it was on a metal rail and it would slide across and uh, basically it would fill out the entire net with growth behind the top shoot. And it was basically designed for like stacking them, but I don't know. It was overly complicated, I guess. I could probably find yeah, it on Instagram yeah, somewhere. Yeah, it was pretty that? cool. I've never used one, but I think they're like several thousand dollars. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, I would not be interested. <laughs> yeah, no. It's definitely an interesting method and it's a set it and forget it for like a commercial space. I think they're kind of trying to get like racked style where you have like, especially for plant count limited places, uh, it would slow your veg a lot, but once you get it kind of dialed in uh, and you get that first cycle into flower, you're basically just flipping kind of regularly and replacing those blocks. But I'm not a huge yeah, fan of the automation. As I say, you can kind of just do that manually. Fuck it for thousands of dollars. Yeah. I'm trying to pull up on my phone right now. I forgot I got a question sent to me and they wanted everybody's opinion. Um, I can vaguely remember the, hmm, I wanted to get the actual quote from them. I don't remember exactly which one, but 
the gist of the question was was um oh here we go okay this is from hambone grown on instagram it says uh i wanted to ask to bring up questions to address uh let me get to it the issue of being able to maintain microbes in the rhizosphere and outdoor gardens he goes, I'm thinking primarily vegetables and even new landscaping and such. I recently learned enough about microbes and no-till organic growing and nurturing the rhizosphere to want to apply that to outdoors. And I've been using an appropriate filter to knock out chlorine and chloramine in my city water successfully for my indoor garden. I quickly learned that I can't be filtering all that shit and bringing it up from the basement to water my stuff outdoors. What do y'all do? Do you know of a good outdoor high flow hose filter? Do you use reservoirs and whatever citrix chemical that's supposed to neutralize shit and water for those? Thanks. So <laughs> my short answer is for my outdoor and even my vegetables and everything, I'm just using straight my straight city water, not unfiltered, because I've built up a lot of, this is my belief, I don't have proof, but <laughs> um, I've built up a ton of organic material. So it's got a ton of... Uh, bacteria and and fungi going in there already so the amount of chlorine that's coming in there might be whacking some of them but i got so much going on that it's it's fine you know what i mean it's it's, it's not affecting them in any way that i've seen negatively not anyway yet so i just don't worry about it and plus i'm spraying through the air so i'm, I'm off gassing some of the chlorine and i don't have chlorine in my water so that's i, I guess think that's important part. to mention yeah yeah i mean like I mean, yeah, like, uh, I think a big misconception is that, uh, like, well, like what Brandon always says, I think is very valid here is that like, if you're not testing, you're guessing, right? Not just him, but many people, yeah. even I already mentioned that, but also the sort of idea that like, if you apply, cause I get asked this question a lot in IPM, like I'm trying to use certain microbes. Like if I use this chemical, you know, or if I water in this certain way, am I going to negatively affect them? And the answer to that is possibly like, but like sometimes you'll hear that a compound is antimicrobial, but like that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't tell you anything meaningful. Um, what microbes is it anti? And it's, and it's like, how much of, of that substance does it take to decimate biology? I mean, the whole population. Talking... Yeah, exactly. Right. That's and the other like, thing. Sure. Yeah. They're mo I mean, they're most likely not putting that much. If you're really concerned about it, you could fill up water, you fill up barrels, you can oxygenate them and put some fulvic acid in there. Yeah. Or humic even, but fulvic would be better. Your humic fulvic acid. Yeah. And there's all and there's probably going to be microbes there already. Um, but again, that's also sort of a totally specious statement without like some sort of context. But um you know, I think you could be reasonably sure that there's probably going to be some level of like microbes in the bulk soil, but it truly is many studies I've even shared um, in presentations. Like there's a lot of research that shows that like uh, the rhizosphere is super important. So like that small, you know, few millimeters uh, from the root plane to the, um, the soil that like makes contact with practically directly, you know, that, that, uh, space is significantly different from the space that's a few centimeters out and that space is significantly different for the microbes past that you know so in a lot of ways um you know through various means those microbes get to the location 
uh, through chemotaxis and actual literal movement and like following like the scent essentially, you know, or the taste rather, if you want to put it that way of like certain compounds that they associate with plant life that they want to be attracted to or possibly not be around. Um, and there's all kinds of stuff like that. So without bogarting the conversation, I just want to say that it is super complex, but um, there are a lot more, in a lot of ways, they're more resilient than you think. Um, and certainly, even if you kill some, uh, you know, unless you're in just like a barren location, it's pretty likely that populations can recover. You know, if they weren't able to do that, we would be in an even worse situation than we are already. I wanted to uh, give a shout out to the person who made that technology I was talking about earlier. Their name is Aya from Trella Technologies or Trella Tech. This is one of their plants. It grows about a six foot wide single cannabis plant by using this little device you can see in the background. I'm going to click back to their page and just kind of show it off a little bit because I did mention and I want people to kind of have an idea of what I was talking about. This, I remember I this thing. Yeah, I, I personally, I don't think it's like the greatest. Time, they had a time-lapse video where you could see the thing actually grow as it stretches the plant out to train it. I was trying to find that. This is like a demonstration, but this is like for tomatoes or something, but it gives you the idea. I'll, I'll keep scrolling down the page and you'll be able to eventually see the cannabis actually being grown in it. The thing is how wide? Six feet. Six feet wide, okay. Six by three, six by four, maybe. I'm not sure, but this is kind of like what I was talking about, where they're trying to make it into like a vertical gardening strategy. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty sharp. I like that. Fits on those those metal racks. Don't look very sturdy. Um, I'd hate to be the guy that has to do the work on those ladders, bending over and trying to prune leaves and stuff on it. Me too, man. Second, third tier thing, man. I'm oh. hating that trend. I'm hating the two tier, three tier trend. I, I, I mean, geez. it's not something about inefficient. <laughs> or yeah. I mean, even in like, even in like Gerber, like in like uh, Netherlands, like they have like, they raise the bed so that you don't have to like bend all the way over to break your back, you know? So like <laughs> a little bit of perspective. So what's the purported benefit? It was just so that we could plant count and, and waste is yeah, what they're plant count advertising. Yeah. Like if you had limited plant count, you could essentially have these things. It'll stretch your plant out into a larger space. It'll tr basically auto train it for, there it is. Here's the thing. So uh, right now the left uh, side, what you're seeing is like a mosquito netting and that's being yeah. filled up with all the vegetation that's being blocked, but airflow is still allowed to go through the lights hitting the, basically What's apical it? tip and it grows it it keeps sliding back and forth really fast it's very the, interesting those are fans see. those are fans oh okay 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 cool blowing underneath the canopy and that's just the tops at the very right yes nice i mean my is first automated by an eye like this is automated laser eye or something it's just videotaped it, it's it's auto fed auto air auto light everything is set up to be set it and forget it so does that continue all the way through bolting or are we talking that you just do that in veg and then once I think you get to flower, I think the fans keep running, but you're, you rip the top net off and then it just flowers through and you are supposed to put up a trellis, I guess. Straight up from there. Okay. My um, initial like hot take is that I would be very concerned with um, the leaves touching so much, all that like physical sort of intimacy 
like um if you don't get good airflow man like if 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 you just happen to get one of those really dank plants which is probably what you want um yeah, i don't know i'd be curious but it yeah. looks really cool to see lot, it gives a lot of spaces for pathogens to take a foothold with all those little micro climbing and, and move quickly climate. you know yeah I agree you know, with sometimes, you. Sometimes, you know, uh, complete robotic automation isn't necessarily the best course of action because when you take the human component out of it, it becomes I would say not sometimes. Soulless, you know. <laughs> I think yeah, that's a little more bit times poetic. Than not. Ooh, tell me how you really feel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Like, I think that the, I think it's important to not, there's tons of automatic things that I know all of you count on. Um, but I would say that, yeah, like when it comes to like really fine tune movements around the plant, there's a reason why like, it takes quite a bit of engineering to like make something that's, uh, you know, like simple enough to be okay and economic enough to be viable. Right. But yet, like you don't have people like you don't have like a machine that goes up and like cuts all the like walnuts or other nuts like on a nut tree like you shake it you know what I mean like this is this is this kind of automation that I would be scared to trust because no matter how sophisticated it was um if it broke down and you didn't have a sub you know if you didn't have a primary human element or something else caring for it yeah it's like I I saw something like that the other day where it was a a drone fleet that was picking fruit off of fruit trees I think I saw something like that a little while ago that is kind of cool I saw that too Um, crazy I was like that is there moving slow I was like that's not like you could literally like one dude give it it time they'll catch up you, you have to prune it correctly I feel like so you can like get in there you know and give it time they'll be picking walnuts with drones too i bet i think yeah how are they gonna get into the yeah like what matthew's kind of alluding to how are you gonna get in there without fucking your blades up really Maybe it's a crawler you gotta you know one of those the old people that need the, like the stretchy thing that they could grab stuff with just put that on the end <laughs> of the drone yeah yeah <laughs> i like it i think some stuff is actually the old school stuff is very effective and the further Agreed. we move away from it, the less efficient we get. We, we end up spending all this time, money, energy, implementing some of the stuff. And then you find out that that thing that just grabbed the tree and shook it was more effective than having 10 drones fly around with a picker and snapping right. them off one by one oh, or whatever sure. it is. I don't know how good it is for the tree. So you don't like any automation, Tao? I'm not trying to attack you. No, I'm, I'm just half joking. But I do believe that human <laughs> interaction with the plant is a must for uh, like like Brandon was saying, it's soulless. You can't have soulless stuff. <coughs> I think uh, there is quote. sort of a spirit to this plant, if any. I mean, probably all plants have, and, and humans or whatever, if, if you have any sort of religious or spiritual thoughts about you. But I think that um, most people would say, if you walked into like a 10 light grow and looked at the quality and saw how many plants there were and how many gardeners there were and how much time the gardener has with each plant versus a guy who has a 100 light grow versus the guy who has a 1,000 light grow versus the guy who has a 10,000 light grow, um, the amount of time and attention to detail that can go into each individual plant, the amount of like quote unquote love that can go into it, uh, or just basically maintaining all the proper parameters or whatever they have felt are the best parameters for that plant to make it perform how they want to. Yeah. It's, uh, like it's an school. art. There's like, the I think teachers... that's why we're going to keep having local 
people like every single state is going to have their people that are killing it in that state You're, like these mso multi-state operators they will have some success they have a big brand and a big name and people will buy their stuff they're going to go state to state and set up but i think that the top 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 notch stuff is going to be old heads ogs people that just really know what they're doing and love what they're doing that really put all the passion and time into the plant that know all these uh strains and genetics that you're never even going to see on the commercial market, but they've been either breeding it themselves or growing it for years and have something special really picked out. That's unique and different from the market. Some of the best oh. I've ever had has been from some of the most uh, careful. And I would say that you guys would describe them in the way that you're talking about sort of soulful. And, um, you know, I'll just shout out uh, Moonmade farms who I visited several years ago. And uh, it's still one of my favorite uh, people I've worked with. Uh, great people trying to do good things and um, are mindful about waste and also treat the plant with a sort of a spiritual regard. And I think that there is something to that for sure. Uh, certainly, I can't knock it um, if I'm being truthful. But I don't know if automation is too bad. You have to be careful with how you do it. You made me think about something. They go by schools. They say if a teacher's got 10 students, that's one thing. If a teacher is better, a teacher with 10 students performs better than a teacher with 100 students. So that's kind of the way I'm looking at it, too. People want as close to one-to-one -one as possible. The closer yeah, you get to one-to-one, -one, the better. It's better, right? Is it is it proven to be better, or is it just no, it's, uh, it's statistically proven. That is statistically proven. So, it's Ooh, why it's, it's really better. important. Yes. Why do you think private schools have such small class sizes? That's it's like five to eight kids in a class. Undoing my material to people for their monies because private, yeah. private learning, <laughs> private learning is the best because somebody ha that has exponentially more experience with a subject can impart way more wisdom on the subject than just a textbook could. When a lot of public schools are forced by a curriculum of a state to teach to a curriculum that they say you have to learn X, Y, and Z for the test. This is going to be on the test. This is in the textbook. By the test, yeah. Yeah. Spartan, even... Your mic is a little quiet. I don't know if you can turn up the gain or. Okay, oh, okay, cool. This is how it goes. Okay, cool, cool. We just got a couple comments in a few episodes in the past few weeks that are saying Spartan's a little quiet. And I want people to be able to hear the good Spartan grown information. <laughs> Yeah, I've got it. I did. It was down a little bit and I did turn it up, but, but it's all the way up as high as it goes now. All right. Appreciate that. Thank you. No problem. Yeah, I definitely agree. People. Um, people don't take the, the time to consider um, the importance of education, even like. Like what we were kind of saying already, like sort of doctrinal, like I always I often criticized that we didn't learn certain subjects or even like you know, when I had uh, my small stint with uh, the military school, like you wouldn't learn certain things that I think would be pretty important to know. And I feel like it's almost because it was more about hyping you up for a certain kind of future rather than like actually educating you as like a leader, which I always came across as like hollow. Right. And uh, it's harder, it's harder to do that when you have a hundred or 200 students, right? Absolutely. Uh, how can you individually assess and and help people out. It's a struggle. Um, and then on top of that, at a higher level education, there are definitely a lot of people who um, they get positions as researchers where they have to teach and they are not interested in teaching, but they are interested in doing the research. So yeah. Or interested in the tenure and collecting that good paycheck. Uh, oh yeah. But I will say education and like people's resources kind of going all the way back to the beginning when we were talking about what makes people buy or not buy something like 
is, is everyone going to buy that $60 plus eighth? Probably not. A lot of them are going to buy the cheapest stuff uh, because going back to the resources is what they can afford. But then on the other end, the two big things, I think it's what they can afford and it's what they know. The education is so key. All of us or most of us know what terpenes are and we might even know which ones we like and what to look for, what strains might have them in there. But most people don't even in the general cannabis consuming market don't even know what terpenes are. I've worked at delivery services. My wife's work currently at one and we've worked at dispensaries and things like that. Most people come in and they want the highest THC and the cheapest stuff. What's your cheapest pre-roll? What's your cheapest ounce? What's your cheapest eighth? Uh, and then there's the people that are like, what's your strongest? What's your strongest indica? What's your strongest sativa? Uh, but education is really important. And I think that part of what we do on this show is, you know, letting people know all of the nitty gritty and intricate details that exist in cannabis so that they can further educate themselves, you know, listening to the show, but even afterward, if you don't even know what to look up, it's hard to Google, you know, what terpene should I consume if you didn't even know that terpenes are out there. So it's a sometimes slow and, a, you know, tedious process to get the information to the people. But once they have it, I think it can really help people start to enjoy some of the more top tier high end cannabis that maybe they wouldn't have even, um, you know, thought about trying before. And like Spartan said, maybe their tolerance will get higher if they do become a more regular user and find, oh, like I've got knee pain. Instead of taking Tylenol or Advil, maybe I'll take this, you know, salve and rub it on my knee. And maybe I'll take some CBD and mix that with the THC. So I'm not feeling stoned. I can still go work, but I'm getting pain relief. You know, like there's a lot of uh, little nuance that I think uh, can really help the end user and make people uh, more able to introduce cannabis into their day-to-day -day life. So I'm just happy that we're able to do that. One of the things I wanted to mention was um, a listener reached out and told me that I believe it was CastBox stopped having all the old episodes. So um, if you can, I'll go pull it up right now on my phone. The new one, oh no, CastBox is the new one that has all the old episodes. It used to be Stitcher. Stitcher had like, if you wanted to listen to like the Josie Wales episode or like the first episode Jack Greenstock was ever on or the first episode of Growing With My Fellow Growers or even like Spartan's first show or Tao's first show, you can go back and listen to all those on CastBox. So anybody out there who uh, enjoys this content, if you wanna look back to some of the older episodes that aren't on YouTube and aren't on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all the other main podcast platforms, you have to go and check out CastBox. It's a free, free to download app. I'm not like plugged or associated with them. It's just a cool way that we can get access to a lot of our deleted information. But I think uh, with that said, we're coming up to about the 5.45 hour here on the West Coast. And this is typically when I give Spartan a chance to give his final thoughts and shout outs before he has to refill the tray and take care of the dogs for Michigan Bro Grow Show. I got to do a podcast too. So after he's done, I'll sign out. Sweet. What podcast are you doing? Um, I'm doing a, a live with uh, Slim and uh, my other new business partner. We have a new facility out here. Oh, just, sweet. Uh, it's getting built out right now. All right, well, I got I got to go, guys. So uh, thanks for the show. It was awesome hanging and talking shop as usual. And uh, shout out to chat, man. It was awesome to, uh, seeing you guys today and talking with you. And hopefully the show uh, hits you in the right spot today. I thought it was a pretty good episode. I really liked it. It covered a lot. It was pretty wide ranging. So it's pretty cool. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm going to go to the bathroom myself and then let the dogs go. They're going to have to wait because I can't. <laughs> Anyways, care, girls, loves guys, and we'll see you next week. Have a great one, Spartan. Thanks, as always, for joining Peace us. Out, Spartan. All right. Well, I'll go next. Uh, it's always good to be here. I've been pretty busy. I got a lot of stuff going on. Um, had a conversation.
uh, Felipe, who's part owner of Compound Genetics and Node Lab. We're going to get some stuff going on. I just finished the premiere season finale podcast over at the FOS headquarters in Las Vegas. We're, I'm, I got a bunch of crazy shit going on. Um, and you my journey over at rust.brandon on IG. If you want to get microbes, humate fertilizers, amendments, things for our IPM, you can head to bokashieearthworks.com. And uh, I'll see you guys next week. Thanks again for joining us, Brandon. Always Take care, Brandon. Have a good one, Brandon. Peace out. Later, guys. I do want to let the chat know next week um, because the last few shows have had like a theme or at least we started with a theme. I think we did the pot sizing pretty well. And then we kind of just spun off and we did talk a little bit about plant training, but it became more of a open dialogue. Uh, next week, I do want to do a chat Q and a, so make sure if you have questions grow related or just cannabis related in general, that you want to hear from anyone on the panel to get those questions ready for next week, because we'll be answering those and potentially even bringing a few of you up on, to the panel to chat with us for a bit and show off your garden if you would like to do that. I think I saw Kyle unmute there for a second. So Kyle, did you want to jump in? Well, I mean, I guess, it, I guess if you really want to know what happened, I, I said all kinds of goodbyes to everybody and the whole time I was muted. <laughs> ah, shit. <laughs> it happens. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I mean, I could, well, to be honest, I, I kind of got to go too. Uh, I got a lot of uh, things to situate, but um I'm on the East Coast. I know everybody knows that already, but not, at least the listeners. But uh, yeah, I'm excited for next week. I love Q&As, man. It kind of gives everybody uh, you know, a chance to kind of get some questions off their chest because um, you know, sometimes people get not so good answers and maybe even some false answers because uh, the internet doesn't have everything. So uh, but yeah, so uh, Kyle Breeder, um, you know, I typically specialize in feminized breeding. I do actually have some uh, 1980s um, skunk and northern lights um, that I'm kind of doing an open pollination on right now and my lord the terpene profiles are so cool like stuff that I've never dealt with even when I was like 16 like it's, it's like pre pre before I was smoking so it's like really cool stuff and uh, you know I'm wicked excited to kind of release that because I think everybody's kind of want to get their hands on those too and I think they should just for even like for preservation reasons and I'm just so much just to get it off me but um, so that's uh, they're just showing signs of male sacs now they're girls i'm doing a feminized open pollination um, but i did save the males because i do find it to be important to for stuff like that i find that important to keep the males with it so i'm gonna i can't do both right now so i took a cut and uh, of the males and put them aside but then the next round i'll kind of do like an open pollination just for like preservation for myself too but uh, so that's going on but i did have a seed launch on saturday that i dropped on my website uh purebreeding.com so if anybody's looking for that i do have uh, a few packs of those left some really 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 cool stuff and uh yeah pure underscore breeding on instagram pure underscore breeding on twitter and i think just pure breeding on uh facebook but yeah feel free to reach out if anybody has questions uh feel free to ask on instagram if it has to do with like money related stuff on instagram if i kind of seem weird it's just because instagram I actually, and I don't know if you guys know this too, but like, or if it's happened to you guys, but I actually like, this is like a few months ago, but I like mentioned something about money on there and like Instagram, like 
like pinged me like in the chat or something and i was so conf- i was like wow they're so they literally are monitoring like everything so uh anybody who does ask just uh if you're business related just email me at pure breeding the letter m letter a at gmail.com uh matt feel free to ask what you want but uh have you guys i'm done but have you guys noticed anything like that have you guys heard about that i have uh seen like when i was selling my book people would ask how much does the book cost and in the dms i would answer and i might even send a link for them to send a payment before i had my website up and um occasionally it wouldn't even let me send the links to them because it was was, like spamming people because i dropped the book and so many people were in the dm so i was you know sending out like here's my paypal or here's my whatever if you want uh send you know send it here and it wouldn't let me send the links out so they do monitor and they do try to limit the amount of commercial interaction that happens in the dm probably because they're trying to limit scams fortunately but unfortunately i think occasionally it's probably like automated just some robot i don't think that there's typically a person on the other end i think they just like we get i get reported for like firearms and drug dealing and every single like one of my posts would say like not for sale but somebody gets butt hurt and they'll go and report your post for like selling weed or something because there's weed in there so instagram unfortunately has a not figured out the terms of service to help the cannabis community out yet yeah i think they they um monitor everything like i i forget where i was reading but even if you type something in and don't send it sometimes i forget if it was facebook or instagram but yeah, even if you type something out, oh no, if you send it and then unsend it, retract it back, somehow they save that. Yeah, but it's saved um, in their logs even, forever as a sent message and an unsent. Even in a regular post, when I uh, wanted to tag, um, I think it was uh, grow, 420 grow room form.com. If I put that into the dot com, it, it wouldn't the, it wouldn't go through. I had to take out that link and then uh, and then it would be fine. So. Yeah, they got some sort of automated uh, algorithm doing taking down some links, at least some links. Well, speaking of the algorithm, make sure to hit that thumbs up to like the show if you did like the show and enjoy the show because we get suppressed even on YouTube. Our views, they go up and down. People tell me they get unsubscribed. People tell me that they don't get the notification, even though they click on turn on notifications and specifically want to get the notification. So you just got to make sure to do all that stuff sometimes and uh, redo it. Cause I've seen not just on cannabis content, but other uh, content that similar stuff happens. So the algorithm or even people actively, I know, um, unfortunately, sometimes people that are politically active and against it within these social media networks, try and go through and delete posts or, um, you know, make posts not show up as much. And that's why I think it'd be cool if uh, they did sort of outsource the, algorithm a little bit so we'd have some sort of idea on if and when things are being sort of uh, pushed and when they're not and why that would be so hopefully that happens sometime in the future with one of the social medias but i don't know i think uh in the meantime we can just enjoy the fact that we're even able to stream this on youtube because for so long um we weren't able to have any sort of cannabis community like this online in a public setting and like i'm at least showing my face Barton was and i know matthew has in the past as well and uh Kyle and Tao even, all of us have uh, been out there in public talking about cannabis where for many, many years that would be impossible to do. So I'm glad to have this uh, outlet each week and I'm very thankful for you guys. So I want to pass it over to maybe Matthew and ask you if you have any final thoughts before we get into the shout out. So this isn't our shout out yet, but just kind of wrapping up the show. Well, I really like the interaction. I really like the conversations and, uh, you know, we did slip into some heady conversation about I think somebody in the chat referred to it as ethics or perhaps like uh, just the state of 
you know, the geopolitics of cannabis cultivation in some ways. And I don't know, at, at a certain point, I think stepping to the 10,000 foot view does help bring a little context and also looking at the history and all that. So I really enjoyed the, um, the various views that we had represented here. Um, and I, I, I'm also wanting to say, Jack, that I'm appreciating how you've been moderating the group lately. Um, that sounds really weird. What I mean to say is that I think that you give everyone a fair shake about saying what they want to say about a particular topic and um, having a topic oftentimes, you know, available to us to sort of spin off on. I think that's been very helpful for the chat, for the audience, and also for ourselves as well. Certainly, I get to be exposed to things that I don't always get uh, regular exposure to or have to consider. Um, and that keeps me honed. And that's always a good thing. It's great when my uh, leisure activities also keep me informed, right? Yeah, it's like interesting that this is like a, a fun time, but it, we're also learning and growing as we go. And I do intend to, you know, kind of tend to keep it that way where we can always, what I realized is even as a consumer of content, uh, cannabis and otherwise, um, sometimes I go back and watch the same stuff kind of over and over, or I'll go through phases and cycles where I'll look at certain types of content and then I'll go back and look at like every single video under a certain label. And sometimes uh, the same content creator will have made one or two or three videos about that subject, but maybe their opinion about, about it changes and develops over the years, or maybe they got more information and they could give you know a better description and uh, have just talked about it enough times that it comes out more clearly. And the weird thing is we could talk about the very uh, niche subjects and, and get more and more niche every single week. And then it would become very difficult for any kind of common person to come and just jump in. But if you talk about some of the, like I'll call them like not basics, but the classic conversations of growing, like a, a lot of the stuff that we just kind of do routinely and maybe don't think about, you can bring out all these little subtleties and get everybody's different opinions. And if uh, giving everybody a chance to speak on it, it opens up, new ideas and thoughts to people that maybe haven't been exposed to it, which is something I really like to do and uh, have been very grateful for everyone here who has been able to share. And um, I think that it's been a working formula. We've got a lot of really happy listeners, myself, I guess, being one, uh, being able to participate, even when I'm not here. I like to listen to all of you guys on the show and uh, just try and learn as much as I can. So I appreciate um, your kind words there. And I'll pass it, I guess, next to Tao before, I guess we're at the final five minutes. So I'll, Kyle, Kyle already gave his signouts, so I guess uh, I'll pass it to Matthew for signouts, and then Tal will be next. Like I said, good game, everyone. Really enjoyed the uh, conversation and also the audience interaction as well. And if you're interested to learn more, I implore you to learn about the pests in your area and the various pests that you might encounter in cannabis. Many of the people in the audience I recognize and have asked questions. And so uh, ask them in the comments after this live stream, ask them on my YouTube channel, Xenthanol, with my pest primer videos about everything from fungus nests to russet mites to pests that are not even on cannabis necessarily for growing vegetables and things like that. Um, and various other plants, um, sorry, various other pests like that. And you can also reach out to me for professional inquiries as well at zenthanol.com. And you can follow me on my personal account at SyncAngel on Instagram and on Twitter. Thank you, as always, for joining us. And um, next up, the American one. Jackie.
thanks for hosting. And uh, it's always good to be here and chat it up with you guys. Um, yeah, basically, you, uh, I have nothing new. Um, you guys went over the, the topping. I do the same as uh, you guys were discussing with the GML topping. I love that. That's really good for keeping plant height. Like, even if it's not under defense, if you need it, if you have a, I have plants underneath a, a workbench. And when they started getting too tall, I started doing the GML and that'll work too. So it's a, uh, it's really a great tool. But other than that, I'm the American one on uh, YouTube and the American one underscore with the underscore Keens on the IG. Most of you know me and know where to find me. And yeah, I have Amy is on Daga.garden. If you want to uh, check out Amy Aces and uh, yeah, that's about it. It's good to be here and we'll see everybody hopefully this week and later on in some other chat as well. So peace. The world renowned Amy Aces. She's uh, internationally known, very popular lady for good reason. Dagadot Garden to check out those seeds. The American one on YouTube and the American one underscore with the Keens on the Instagram. Thank you so much for joining us, Tao. Uh, I really, like I said, I really enjoy this every single week. I'm able to join all of you. I appreciate the chat coming out. Just want to remind them again. Next week, we're going to do a chat Q&A and potential to have some of the regulars jump onto the panel. So if you don't already have Zoom downloaded, download that and it'll be again 4 to 6 p.m. on the West Coast next Sunday. So I'm really looking forward to that. Even though I really love these topic episodes, I also tend to enjoy when we uh, have a good chat Q&A as well. So mixing it up keeps it interesting for me, hopefully uh, for the listeners as well. I'm going to try and get this on the podcast as soon as possible. Uh, my internet is being weird these last few weeks. So it's taken like instead of a few minutes to download, like an hour plus sometimes. So uh, getting it downloaded from YouTube and uploaded onto the podcast, I'm doing it as fast as the internet is uh, possibly allowing me to do. So I appreciate everyone's patience in that. I know most of you probably listen to it Monday, not Sunday night. So uh, it doesn't matter too much, but I do know a few hundred do listen to it the same night on the podcast after. And thank you to everyone who's here live in the chat. It's been a really fun time. Uh, Sour Diesel Tangy made me laugh earlier with his, uh, this is the Cheap Home Grow podcast. He wrote out one of the uh, quotes that used to start the all the shows when we were kind of talking about the old podcast. So uh-huh. that was a good, good throwback there. But yeah, grow love to everyone. Rosinante, Staggering Productions, Lara Camp, and so many more in the chat. We Nerd DWC, a lot of really great people join us every week, and we really do appreciate it. I read a lot of the comments tonight, but didn't uh, put them into the show as much as I will next week. Uh, try to keep the flow of everything going and let everyone get their peace out and uh, just keep the great conversations coming as much as we can. But with that said, you can see my logo here um, at Jack Greenstock on Instagram. Don't post there too much, but you can find me there if you want to DM. And uh, Jack underscore Greenstock is my backup account on Instagram or on Twitter. Then finally, if you want to contact me outside of social media, you can contact me at jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. And if you want a copy of the book, 50 Strains of Green, it's on 50strains.com. And uh, I appreciate the international individual who just ordered one. I'm shipping it out tomorrow morning. So uh, thank you again to everybody for the support and all those orders. Uh, greatly appreciated. I'm happy to share that uh, history of cannabis with people. So it's fun to ship those out. And it, just kind of blown away that people are still uh, ordering them. It feels like it's been so long since I made it, but I guess that's how things roll. I'm very uh, humbled and grateful for all the support from everyone, both listening and supporting in other ways. I know I'm not the only one who has uh, products and other things. So uh, I see a lot of the people on this panel being supported by the listeners. And that's what this community is about. I mean, supporting the people that uh, 
are helping you. And, you know, I think it is a two-way street. I really think that we've gotten a lot from the community. We've learned a lot from you as well. So never stop asking those questions. Keep growing, grow as love. And for Dr. MJ Coco, he would normally say grow as love. So grow as love from Dr. MJ and Jack Greenstock signing out. Catch you all next week.